Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network.
course, the conspiracy nuts believed that he was part of some secret black office. Because, of course, he worked for the U.S. State Department, and he sells all this stuff. Um, and then he was dumped off. The thing is, I think when those things happen, they kill you. They don't just beat you up and leave you on a beach. I, I've seen Zero Dark Thirty. They don't just leave guys. Right? They bullet in the head, two in the head, two in the gut, and they leave you. They also leave your body just sitting there. So I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think that's kind of crazy. I think the interesting thing is, this stuff, he had no episodic memory at all. Uh, he had massive damage. He'd been kicked in the head quite a bit. Okay, so he had massive damage. Uh, a parietal and uh, frontal. And temporal. Like he, was, he was pretty beaten up. Okay? He kicked somebody in the head enough, he would hurt really badly. That would be, that's, by the way, that's, this, that's today's understatement. Kick someone in the head, it hurts them really badly. Um, there was stuff spared, obviously. He could speak English. He found out he could speak other languages. He didn't know he could, by the way. Um, the, the, the cops, of course, are speaking English to him, because why do they speak English? And then his brother shows up. He has no idea that it's his brother. And his brother starts speaking Portuguese to him, and he speaks Portuguese. He's like, dude, I speak Portuguese. I had no idea. And it turns out he could also, I believe, speak French, Italian, and there's one other that spoke five languages. So he's a promising young diplomat, and, um, well, his career's obviously over. He didn't recognize his mother. He sort of vaguely, apparently, recognized her voice. That's what she said. Uh, that's what she said. Uh, but that could just be a mother's wishful thinking. We don't know. So it's a strange case. An interesting way to, 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 to introduce all this stuff is that there are times when we don't know what the hell's going on. Um, and a lot of times, because we're dealing with case studies almost always, and I've posted <coughs> case studies while we see how you can take a look at. Again, I reject the idea that he's part of some secret operation run by the CIA. They, would, they wouldn't be that fumbling. So we're going to look at people with amnesia mostly. Well, that's what that's what, what it's amnesia. What's what's the memory? That's, that's the memory disorder. Sort of all encompassing. Why do we study this stuff? Um, well, besides the obvious, you know, clinical implications. A lot of these results with amnesia have led us to many discoveries about memory itself, episodic versus semantic memory. Uh, the, the, the cases of uh, uh, KC and HM have told us a great deal about the organization of, of human memory. The idea of procedural versus declarative. Declarative memory, a procedural memory is basically what people call, and I hate this term, muscle memory, knowing how to do stuff. Declarative memory really contains both episodic and semantic stuff, right? So, this is stuff you know. It's told us about implicit versus explicit memory. Uh, so you've got cases where, well, again, HM is the great example, the all-time classic, but so is KC, another great example, where their explicit memory is gone, they can't form new ones. But their implicit memory is completely intact. You know, uh, HM learned mirror tracing, that's what Brandon Miller, the first, one, the first thing she found about he could learn mirror tracing, he could learn a new task. 
I do a procedural task, which is implicit. Procedural tasks are implicit. Um, KC shows completely normal uh, priming of, uh, you know, word fragments, things like that. So you can, you can theorize all you want about differences, and the, the, the great Colby paper I posted talks about that. But once we had the physiological evidence from these sort of experiments in nature, it tells us more. It's even the case that the phonological versus the visual-spatial sketch pad, there are cases where people get one knocked out and not the other. Typically, that's a stroke situation. And it's the only way we can do this, right? Because, frankly, we can't do lesions on people. Uh, much as I've, I have a list of people I'd like to lesion. <laughs> right? You can do it with, you know, you, you can separate these things with other variables with uh, uh, things like retention interval or levels of processing, but you, you, you can also. I think the important thing here is to realize that sometimes you really need this kind of evidence to, to sort of nail everything down. So that's sort of why you'd study it academically and not just clinically to help somebody. Um, some problems here with studying memory disorders, because they are the results, they can be the result of degenerative disease, and we'll talk about that, but they're very often the results of accidents and strokes. So Taxonomically, it's difficult. It's just classification, right? Because if it's from an accident, everybody's damage is a little bit different. Right? And when you look at KC, he's got massive temporal and frontal damage. Like, it's, it's a motorcycle accident without wearing a helmet. That's, that'll do damage. That'll hurt you. That's, again... More health tips from me. Don't get kicked in the head and always wear your helmet. Or wear your helmet while getting kicked in the head. That's also good. As, as uh, Kramer did in the crazy Joe Bola. So you're never going to get something that looks the same in every single patient, right? So classifying these things can be hard. And I know that you guys, and this is, don't worry about this, this happens to everybody, mixing up the KC and the HM cases is something people do. Not just because they're all letters, but because, you know, we know KC has this, we know HM has this, some of the things look the same, some of the things look different. It's hard to say that they both have this or both have that. And so taxonomically, it's a real challenge. Um, so we have that. We also have individual differences, such that very often we don't know what people do before their accident. People are constantly being given batteries of, psycho of experimental psychological tests, of cognitive psychology tests. So, right? It doesn't happen. So we don't know what they were like before the accident, or before a stroke. We have anecdotal reports. We can certainly say that uh, Philip Kudahar, or Kudahir, whatever he pronounced that, uh, that, that he was clearly a pretty bright guy. Right? We know what Casey did for a living. We know what HM did for a living. But they weren't given a whole bunch of tests, typically. It's not that common. So we also have individual differences sneaking in here. And then we have to interpret what's going on. 
Um, so how much of this is due to a brain injury? How much of this is due to individual differences, et cetera? Um, so we have that problem of uh, interpretation as well. Finally, we, we, we applying this stuff to normal functioning, and it's really helped us understand normal functioning. One of the things that abnormal functioning does is it helps us understand normal functioning. Just that's just true. Talk about that in, uh, in, in psychopathology. We can understand how normal people behave by looking at people that have too much or too little of something. But when we're going to apply this to normal functioning, we again have to worry about the fact that this guy's got a effed up head. He's been banged up so badly that is that just because of a memory problem or is it something else as well? When you've been kicked in the head a whole bunch of times, it's hard to know how much of this is because of some cognitive system being isolated from being or damaged, and how much of it is due to the fact that you've gone through a pretty serious injury that has other psychological issues as well as physical ones. So, really, this all comes down to a lack of control, um, which is, of course, inevitable when you're dealing with case studies. It's, it's really the only thing we can use as case studies for a lot of this stuff. When we get to things like Alzheimer's, uh, well, no, a lot of people get Alzheimer's. So, in that case, we can, you can get you know, samples of patients, etc. But typically, we're dealing with single cases. So, these are really, in essence, these are just problems of using individual cases, no matter what the disorder is. Right? It's like, when I was eight, before, by the time I was 18 months old, I had three hernias. Um, and my mom and dad asked the doctor why, and he's like, I don't know, which I'm sure was very, very great for them. They must have thought that was awesome. Um, but he was being serious, or sorry, she, actually. Uh, she was like, I don't know. Everybody's different. He's just a newborn baby, and then he gets these hernias, and sometimes babies get hernias, and your kids had three. Yeah, you know, and then I was, apparently, they discussed me at a panel discussion at the Canadian Medical Association. Just my first publication, I was a year old. Um, but, you know, again, this is one of these cases where they don't really know for sure, right? And it's hard to extrapolate from a single case to anything else. You know, having a whole bunch of hernias before you're 18 months old is not called Broadbeck syndrome, which would be kind of cool. So case studies have an inherent problem, and we have to get by that. That's just life. Yeah, go ahead. What, what do they do with cases that are, um, like, like you're saying, we just don't know why or what, and you don't have any other cases to even do a comparison? That's, that's, that's the biggest kind of problem, yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at with the hernia thing. Like, people do get hernias, but they, you know, you, it doesn't get written up even, because it's not, it's, you know, it wasn't a brain injury. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> when you don't have anything to compare it to, what you have to do is you... This is where teams of neurologists, neuropsychologists come in. I mean, and they can say, look, I've read the literature on this. We can do a bunch of tests. It looks like this is the problem. We can do an MRI, et cetera. Things are better today than they were because at least now with MRI, we can take a look and get a pretty detailed picture of the brain. So what uh, you're doing then in studying is isolating it? Trying to. Trying to isolate different uh, yeah. impairments? Yeah, I mean, you're doing exactly what you do in any kind of sort of science, except that you have a kid, you have an N of one. That's the problem. So you don't know how much of this is error on your part. You don't know how much of this, as I said, is, is because of everybody's a little bit different. You know. Um, so, and they're almost always, I mean, there are cases, for example, HM is a beautiful case. And part of that is because the lesion was done on purpose, and it was done really, really well. 
Uh, and in fact, HM's brain is now being sectioned and it will be put on the internet. Because he's dead. Just, you know, like, you're not just doing that. He wouldn't remember. <laughs> um, you know, he wouldn't remember anything now. But yeah, because brains would be put on the internet, he'd be able to actually see the slices of hippocampus, whereas hippocampus was, uh, or CA1 has been inflated beautifully. It looks like it was somebody who did a lesion on a rat with a rat atlas. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's pretty, the lesion again, if you can consider lesions pretty. Um, it's sort of, but most cases aren't like that. Most cases are strokes. Most cases, for strokes and then accidents. I don't have any control in those cases, right? A stroke, it's going to damage one part, but other bits get wrecked too. And then with, with head injuries, I mean, even a closed head injury, uh, you know, that's, 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 there's not just going to be damage in one area. So like I said, it's just, you got to do these cases as one thing at a time and look at a whole bunch of cases together and realize that everyone's a little bit different. Unlike if you did a rat lesion study, like if you are lesioning rat brains, you put the rat in a device, you anesthetize them obviously, and then you open up its skull, you take the cap off, like of the skull, and then you look on the atlas and you say, I want to do CA3 of hippocampus, and it says, on this angle, this deep, with this much electrical power, will destroy that part of the brain. You just, so you, like that, it's so like electrical lesion, you just fry part. Or you can do um, chemical lesions, so you just destroy it with uh, some chemical. But there's an atlas. I have a rat brain atlas in my office. And it just tells you exactly how to do it. You can train a monkey to do lesions. Well, it'd be pretty impressive with a monkey. But I mean, back in the old days, back before the animal care committees were really that, you know, worried about things. People used to let undergraduates do lesions in physiological psychology courses. That's been a long time ago. That's a long time ago. But yeah, you just, it's not that hard to do. Get your microscope. You take them to the hell it's called the cannula. You put it in at a certain angle, certain depth, and you you've got that part of the brain. Unlike with head injury, <laughs> it's like you don't know. You don't know. You could do it if you had to do that for a person, and I mean, you know, that's certainly possible and doable. But um, we, of course, can't do that, and it's good that we can't do that because it would be a very different society if we allowed people to experiment on each other. So we have to rely on these things. They're thankfully pretty rare. Thankfully for humanity, not thankfully for science. So it's like I said, we're dealing with accidents or strokes almost always. Almost always. Uh, here's here's a, a famous case. This is case SP. And SP, you always go with initials. It's just one of those things. So you have another name. Keep the anonymity. So what SP? What happened with SP is medial temporal lobes, both of them. This is a pretty massive stroke. Uh, left hippocampus and lots of the surrounding area of, of the hip, hip, left hippocampus, but not the amygdala. So, you know. so that's what happens. So SP recovers. And then SP is asked to name objects. This is a very common neuropsychological test. In fact, this is something that uh, neurologists and neuropsychologists do all the time is they ask you, what is this? 
They very often lose. What are these? Because they have keys in their pocket, or what is this? Because they have a pen. And <coughs> SP couldn't name it. SP knew what keys were, but couldn't call these keys. For example, you could say, okay, well, what are, do you know what keys are? Oh, yeah, they're, you know, those things for opening doors, locks, things like that. Right. What are these? And what people tend to do in these cases is they skirt around it. They act. They say things like, those are devices that one uses on occasions when doors must be opened. Right. What do you use to open doors? Keys. What are these? I, those are things that you would use if there was a locked door. And again, what are keys? No, keys are, you know, they don't locks. What's this? I, and they, they, they confabulate. They make stuff up. In fact, and confabulation happens a lot in people with brain disorders. Same thing with Korsakoff's. People with Korsakoff's confabulate like crazy. Right? Uh, they don't even oftentimes know they're doing it. Now, one has to ask, medial temporal. Medial means in the middle, remember? That's right about, oh, that's right, Beard Broca's area, which controls speech. So maybe part of the problem here was a memory problem, a semantic memory problem, maybe part of it was a linguistic problem. A language. And we don't know, we can't know. This is a, one of the reasons I want to bring this case up, because it's a nice illustration of the idea that we can't know if it is a, the, a memory issue, sort of basically a, a, a semantic memory issue, but it's not this is completely semantic. Knows what keys are, can't name them. Uh, SP has anterior brain and retrograde amnesia. In other words, it's all gone. So no episodic memories at all. So a similar case to KC, except KC can name objects. KC can name objects. So that's it. So that's just one example where we look at this and we don't know. Is the trouble naming objects a linguistic problem because of damage in left temporal? Or is it a memory problem? It's probably a bit of both. It's probably a bit of both, right? Clive Weary is an interesting case. Clive Weary is a British uh, composer, musicologist, uh, complete expert in classical music. Uh, he was a program on BBC, on television, where he would interview musicians, he would interview composers. Uh, he conducted choirs, he played many instruments. He was famous. So this is why it's a famous case, and this is why I got a picture of the guy, and also he, his family are perfectly fine with people using You can find videos of him on YouTube, by the way, just to take a look. Um, and this is why we, we don't call him KCW. He already is famous, and his family has been like, no, it's okay. You can use this. What happened is he complained to his wife one day that he was really nauseous and had a pounding headache. And it turned out it was a cephalitis. Okay, so that's your, uh, that's your brain swelling. Yeah. Uh, his temporal lobe was dilated. What that means is uh, his temporal lobe was swollen. And if it's swollen up, that it, it's, it's going to push against the meninges, the brain bag, and, and, and your skull, and it's going to damage it. 
but he's got pretty big damage everywhere. Uh, untreated cases of encephalitis are bad. Right? And even, even treated, he was treated. Uh, the damage can't be reversed. Right? This is like stereo meningitis. You may have heard about people having meningitis. My, my, my brother-in-law just went through having bacterial meningitis. Um, he reported he was, had a headache and a stiff neck for a couple days. He had to bring his drive from Toronto. He went to London to Toronto every day to do for work. The final day that he did this before my, my mother convinced him to go to the hospital was he came home and he said, you know, I, I just got home. I really have no idea how. And she went, okay, then we go to the hospital. <laughs> he, he's fine. Uh, it looks like no, no impairments whatsoever. He was forced, he's been forced to sit at home and take IV antibiotics for three weeks, but it looks like he's fine. Uh, it was still, it was interesting. It's typical of my brother-in-law, Andrew, who's a great guy. Even while he was in the hospital, he was texting me. And making jokes, and he's saying things like, enjoy the morphine, it's free and it's legal. And he's like, yes, yeah, so far it's great. You know, so it's, he's liking things on Facebook. <coughs> so he's a happy case. Clyde Weary, encephalitis is much more dangerous because your brain's actually swelling. My, my, my brother, Andrew, he was a meningitis, his, his, that's meningitis, is the, the membrane that coats your uh, central nervous system. So it swells up. But this is the case of your brain actually swelling. So what happens to Weary is he has this pervasive amnesia. Um, what he does, uh, he keeps a diary every single day of everything that happens. And sometimes he kind of slips in and out of consciousness. It's really sad because this is a, a sort of public intellectual. You know, hosting a BBC, BBC show about, you know, BBC shows about, about classical music. That's about his, you know, that's way cooler than you know being someone who hosts this uh, show on CBC on Sunday morning and talks like this. Why does why does everyone on the CBC talk like this? It's a fake accent and I hate it. It's a fake CBC accent and my tax dollars are in a bottle. Because I know there's some secret training facility and they train people to speak pretentious. That and Don Cherry. If the world my tax dollars support those things. <laughs> anyway, hippocampus is gone. It's gone. It's destroyed. Well, look, if his temporal lobe is all <laughs> swollen up, it's going to do a lot of damage. His, 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 his hippocampus is gone. You know what's interesting about this guy? He can still play piano. You give him music and an orchestra, he can still conduct it uh, properly, too, not just doing what I would do. <laughs> you know, like he can actually know what he's doing. Uh, he can still compose music, little bits of it, and it goes away because you have to be, that's not just working memory, right? But he's, he's a fascinating case, uh, and it's partly he's fascinating because he was such a public intellectual, and it shows how important memory is, I think, to intellect. So again, you, you can find it all about this guy, and like, say, HM and KC and all these people who were anonymous, except to the researchers and their families, this guy is he's his family his wife is not take it public, it might it'll no problem. People know who he is already. So it's an interesting case. I mean it was reported in the news in Britain that, that he had been hurt this way. This is this is a big time star. And it's sort of a sad case. Well not sort of, it's an exceedingly sad case. As they pretty much all are. Um 
So general things we can say about performance patterns in amnesia, we can talk about retrograde amnesia, which is losing past memories. These tend to be episodic past memories, not semantic. They tend to be episodic. Um, anterior brain amnesia is losing new memories. This is the common thing. Or not, no, sorry, no new memories. You can't lose new ones. There's always some retrograde amnesia from before the uh, uh, incident. There's always some from before. So, you know, people uh, will have a... When you ask KC... Because Casey's aware that there's something wrong with his memory. And when you ask him, do you know why this happened? And he'll tell you, I've been told it was an accident. Do you know how? And you're like, I think I had a motorcycle accident. I think I've been told that. But he doesn't remember the damn accident. And that's really pretty difficult. Now, he's got both these. Typically, you, the more typical HM just had a thyroid amnesia. No new memories being formed. No new, again, explicit memories. We know the function is often spared, so we get implicit tasks like priming or ability to learn a new skill. Those things can and are often spared. Almost always, actually. Typically spared is also working memory. Um, it's often the case that people don't know, and I've told you this, that the story goes with, with HM is that no one knew that he had a problem with his memory until he found out that his anti and then found out again the next day had the same emotional reaction. Right? Because they can hold normal conversations. You can have a conversation with somebody, it's all a working memory. Right? Semantic memory is, is, is usually spared as well, so you still know what breakfast is. And KC could learn new declarative stuff, declarative semantic memory. So how did this work? This is, according to this experiment, what, what happened was that KC is shown pictures, and he's given a caption. And he's given a caption that really only has one answer. So the, the, the classic example that he had was two policemen pointing their guns at a at the camera. And the caption is, police kill assassin. Now, Tolling always has the word assassin in every experiment he does, and I don't know why. I think he likes the word. And that's fine. But he always, it's always that. Now, six months later, at a party at Tolving's house for his graduate students and members of his lab, Casey's invited over as well, and the graduate students take him upstairs and show him these pictures. And the caption says underneath, police kill ass blank. There's only so many ways you can fill that in. Ass clown. <laughs> asshole. Ass clown. Office Space is the great, one of the greatest movies ever made. That's why I got Ass Clown, right? Now an Ass Clown. You've seen Office Space, right? You've all seen Office Space. You haven't? You're, you're, you're not required to watch it. 
guy's named Michael Bolton, and he's a no talent. You know, I had a cool name until that no talent ass clown showed up. Guy starts going to work, wants to get fired. So he just starts showing up late. Buddy might actually did that to get a severance package. He was the executive <coughs> vice president of a big company. He showed up to work with ripped jeans, t-shirts, with stains on them, and shaved. You get to your severance package. So you see, you can learn a lot from the movies. Someone's got a case of the Mondays. Said I could. I was told I could listen at a reasonable volume. I'll burn that the day. Yeah, there. Recalling the views of Ernest Lawson and his experiments often because of the emotional. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I think he used it because there's really no other way to fill it in except for asshole. Like, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, I think that it's because it's good and you can't really say anything else. That's always been my guess. I always was a little bit afraid of him, so I never asked him why. Seriously. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit, he's a little bit intimidating. I don't know if he cultivates that. I don't think he actually does. He was actually a really nice, gentle man. But he was really important. He kind of scared all of us. So, case, this is six months later, Case C goes, Assassin. <coughs> What he's done here is he's restricted the errors. You really can't make any errors. And Casey would know that it's not asshole, right? He'd say, no, it's not like they're making me say off-color words. Yes, let's link the poor amnesiac swear. What a fun, fun game that is. <laughs> Can you fill in this word fragment? F blank U-C-K. <laughs> it's fire truck. Um, Nothing? No? So he showed, now if you just showed him the picture, he, has, he goes like, I, I, I don't know, uh, two cops with guns. But if you show him the picture with everything, but the, the, the stem of assassin, he fills it in. So you really restrict the possible errors. And in that case, he could learn new semantic knowledge, new, uh, new, new declarative semantic knowledge. So why does this happen? Why can't people form new memories? This is a good question. Um, it's probably difficulties with interference, retrieval, and encoding. In other words, everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong. <coughs> so, and the biggest, it seems to me that always the, the, the biggest culprit is the idea of consolidation. Uh, one of the things that hippocampus seems to do, especially while you're asleep, by the way, is the guess, is uh, REM sleep. Is it consolidates memories, it files them away. There's a whole collection of uh, like a lost and found various mugs and stuff up here. Anybody? They're all full, too. Should we look in them? No. Oh, God. Science? <laughs> I'm allergic to penicillin, so keep that away from me. No, this is a There's mold cold there. coffee. No, there isn't. It's not, now, a couple of years ago, in brain behavior, it was more like that. That was last fall. Was that, yeah. Yeah, that was gross. see what's in this one. Because you want to hear... Then you realize it's That's just water. Like yogurt. Yeah. Well, it, it used to be milk. Now it's yogurt. Yeah. This one, I, well, I don't know if someone's had your mouth on that, so I don't want to touch that. <laughs> I okay. got hand sanitizer if you want. No, I'm good. 
I'm good. I'm select, I don't want to select for germs that are going to be even worse. So, comes down to hippocampus, consolidating memories. How does it do that? Where did I don't know. I, it's the contacts, you're sending the item off for processing or something like that. <laughs> no one really knows what hippocampus is doing. We know it's exceedingly active when you're sleeping. In REM sleep, hippocampus is exceedingly active. There's a theta wave, it's, it's really active. It, it knows when you're sleeping, it knows when you're awake, it knows if you're bad good. <laughs> so it'll be good for goodness sake. So, it's something to do with hippocampus, we know that. We know that. Okay, what about semantic memory problems? Some of you guys have asked me this a couple times. You guys have. Does people ever lose their semantic memory? Um, somebody, if you ask somebody, what's a cat? They go, I don't know. And it's not because they've never learned what cats are. Because everyone knows what cats are. These are exceedingly rare cases, and they tend to be temporal lobe again. But it can't, it's not all of semantic memory that's, that's gone, because people can still talk about things. But you ask them what common objects are. And again, they confabulate. What's a cat? Well, you know if you've seen a cat, they're very similar to other items and or devices that remind one of cats. <laughs> Which isn't really an answer, but the person's speaking to you. And this isn't just a, 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 a picture naming problem or an object naming problem. This is, I don't know what a cat is anymore. Right? These are exceedingly rare. There's very few of these cases. Uh, usually episodic memory is intact, which is even weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say, wouldn't, isn't the semantic memory also linked to knowing um, like famous peoples and events that are common knowledge to Yeah, sure, of course it is. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's that, but they would have the episodic, cool. but not the semantic. So you would say, remember yesterday when we talked, I asked you what a cat was? Yeah, I do. I remember that pretty well. We were sitting here, I was sitting there, and uh, we were talking about uh, cats. Yeah, what's a cat? Well, if you've ever, you know cats. <laughs> if you've seen one cat, you've seen them all. <laughs> so you still know what cats are, do you? Yeah, I have no idea. Does happen, very rare. So the naming objects inside of people of aphasia or trying to yeah. remember. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> yeah, it's very common. It's a very common yeah. thing that happens. In fact, right after strokes, usually two things happen about the strokes. Their language gets shot to hell for a couple days, and their ability to name objects is shot to hell for a couple days. That almost always, both those things almost always come back. Unless it was damaging the play, yeah. face through the system or the language system. Yep. Um, you know, in case that you talked about KC, yeah. right, the name of the object would be on the tip of his tongue. Yeah, that's right. Is it the same with uh, crispy like, and control calculation, where you're just trying to uh, work around not being able to name something? Or is it like that's a conscious kind of thing? It, it depends on the on the case. Like Casey's been tested enough now that he seems to have learned that he has a memory problem. Yeah. So he 
will usually look at you, apparently, I've never been there when he's been actually tested. I've never been there when he's tested. And he usually looks, apparently, at you and says, I would guess. Because he, he knows that he's got a problem. Other cases, people really don't know they have the same kind of problems. They're like, they're just not sure. And they tend to confabulate things, etc. Or they'll make reasonable guesses. We talked the other day about you're never making reasonable guesses. This is why AHM always said to Brendan Miller, didn't we go to high school together or aren't you on TV? Those are reasonable guesses for someone whose face looks familiar, but you can't place them. Right? It's someone you must have seen, and it's someone I guess, if I know them, everyone must know them. Because I have the recollection of meeting them. Right? But every case is different. But the interesting thing about KC is that he does apparently have some. He's aware that he's got a problem. He's aware that he's got a problem. So that's new semantic knowledge that he's learned, right? If you think about the movie Memento, if you ever hear seen that, put your hand you seen that movie. That's pretty good, eh? They did a really nice job of talking about episodic versus semantic memory in that movie, because he's got his semantic memory, or his episodic memory is gone. But he's learned a skill to, de to deal with it, which is to get tattoos all over your body, which is a little bit odd. But and to write things down. And in fact, people that have these problems, the coping skill, they're off the pot. You just write everything down. And as long as you learn, you can learn that, and, and then remember to go back and write, and, and look at your notes, you'll get through a day. But yeah, really, everybody's a little bit different. And that's, again, one of the problems with these kind of things, is that everybody's just a little bit different. If we could just all put them in labs, and, and leash them as big as babies. Kidding! No, I wouldn't do that. Again, the list of people I want lesion, they're all adults that have done me wrong. <laughs> um, there, are there are cases of people with intact, sounds like my phonological loops screwed up, intact phonological loops, um, and their visual spatial sketch pad is gone. This is, in fact, what convinced me that this was sensible. I, I, for the longest time, I've looked at this and said, yeah, sure. But it seems pretty clear. Um, and of course, both the other way around, too. People that can't. And the nice thing is here, with people that have working memory problems, again, they can learn new knowledge. So typically what happens in these cases is people are taught to use, and it used to be they'd be taught to use a, a PDA, or a, a palm device. But now they can just be taught to use a phone and write everything down. Right? So they've got reminder, it makes a reminders app on their phone. But no one ever uses that app, right? They never do. It's, just, it's there. But they just remember to write down the whole shopping list. Then when you go shopping, you have this thing open, and it, it's got a list. Right? So, I mean, technology is really helping people that have these kind of problems. These aren't exceedingly common, but they do have them. And again, think about you've got problems in visual spatial sketch pad. You don't know where you're going. My phone knows where I am all the time. So does the government. <laughs> That's why they got that Philip Kutar guy. Because he knew too much. Maybe I should talk about these conspiracy theorists. They're just hilarious. Because everything you say, you say, no, that can't be true. And then they say, of course you'd say that. Like things like that. It's just a, a, I was at a U2 concert um, in Montreal in 2010. With Maddie, and the two of us standing, and that beside us is, is, is going on about all these conspiracies about how the Americans had caused an earthquake with 
And I was just like, you can't ruin this day for me. <laughs> it's like trying to watch that one TV show where this dude comes on, he's like the governor or something, he's talking about all these conspiracy theories. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's great when you're with somebody who's like believing every word. I know, people believe, and then you can't get the idea with me saying there's no evidence for this. They say, of course there's no evidence. They say, you see, there's your problem. My favorite was he was saying that people were coming after him, the government was trying to get him, and the guy I was with was saying he was believing all this. I'm like, then why is he doing on this on TV? TV? <laughs> yes, I'm like, if they really wanted yes, to get him. Because the government, whatever government it may be, they have no access to TVs. Yeah. <laughs> There's a problem with the democratization of media and blogging and podcasting, and it's that every idiot now has a microphone. Um, so this stuff can happen, but the nice thing is you, you, you can now with, with, with smartphones, people can really be trained very quickly to use these devices and lead pretty normal lives. Pretty normal lives. Now, it may be the case that you have to write everything down you do, and that's why Memento is a nice example there. Uh, but I mean, I'm thinking about having to say, I just put something in the oven. Right? And then you have an alarm set that says, in 10 minutes, check the oven and take the cookies out. you have an alarm that says that? You could. That'd be cool. Yeah, you just got to ask that Siri to do that for you. What's the meaning of life? It's got a sense of humor, which I like. And also because it's out in the cloud, it, they change the answers. So if I ask it again, what's the meaning of what? I don't believe there is a consensus on this question. <laughs> okay, now let's get depressing. As if this other stuff wasn't depressing enough, but at least people that have those kind of damage, the damage is done. And maybe you can have them lead up somewhat normal life or as close to normal as you can get, and it's not true with Alzheimer's. Um, more than half of all dementia is Alzheimer's. Uh, this is two times more women than men get Alzheimer's. This may simply be uh, an artifact of women living longer than men. Because there is a whole notion out there that eventually this would happen to all of us if we lived long enough. And that this is sort of a plague of the 20th and 21st centuries because we live long enough for this to happen to us now. It's, I don't know if I buy that or not, but it, it has that, certainly to it. Um, what happens in your brain is these neurofibrillaries, those are hard to say, tangles, and they're sort of drawn in here in this neuron. These are basically just bunches of protein, these protein tangles, and also amyloid plaques, or neurolytic plaques, so it looks sort of like this, except that your brain doesn't have a, a tan-colored background and purple neurons. Uh, purple neurons is an old band I was in, mostly new wave stuff in the 80s. But, um, <laughs> so, if you know a little bit about it, you took brain behavior, maybe you took neuropsych with Dwayne, you know that a neuron, to stay alive, has to synapse on another neuron. If it doesn't synapse, it dies. Because the next neuron, releases NGF, neurogrowth factor, which stops programmed cell death. All cells die. Uh, all brain cells are programmed to die. Brain cells are exceedingly expensive to maintain. Not a ball. So if they're not doing anything of any value, so they're not synapsing, let them die. 
That's the notion, right? Now, the problem is what happens inside here is the tangles, in essence, kind of choke off the neuron. It's hard for it to even transport um, neurotransmitter to, to, the, to the, ax into the axon. And the plaques do the same thing. They get in the way of things like of, 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 of neurotransmitter and of uh, NGF. So you get cells start to die. Um, so we get massive cell death. And you get, in, in essence, you get like lesions everywhere. That's what's happening. Okay. It's what they call a cortical dementia because it starts in your cortex. Um, dementia is just a, a term for uh, a brain-based cognitive problem. Like, which is kind of, I know it's all going to be brain-based, but we can actually see what it is, and it causes cognitive issues. Um, and you can talk about cortical dimensions and subcortical dimensions. So this is a cortical dementia. It starts in your cortex, but it works its way down, and eventually gets to where it stops you from breathing and your heart from beating. Okay? And I think probably many of us in this room have been touched by this horrible bastard of a disease at some point in our lives. So you basically get holes in your brain everywhere. It's horrible. A lot of neurotransmitters are affected here, but the most important one is acetylcholine. It almost seems to target acetylcholine, and it also seems to target, when it gets far enough in, it targets acetylcholine, and a lot of hippocampus runs on acetylcholine. So the acetylcholine's is, uh, system is severely damaged in, in Alzheimer's disorder disease. It seems like it's targeted. Like it's, it's a really insidious thing, this disease. So you, first of all, you're damaging all kinds of other stuff on the way down, and then eventually you're going right after where memories are consolidated. Pretty bad. Uh, it's not like other systems are spared. It's not like dopamine's spared or, or, or whatever. Yep. Doesn't Alzheimer's start, or commonly is found to start in like the, the frontal parietal and then works towards the frontal, but then down towards the temporal? Yeah, a lot of times doesn't have to. The last one that's, it's that, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, but it often exists. Yes. Well, memory effects, there are episodic effects. Um, you know that did that. Um, that's the first thing that goes to the episodic stuff, being able to form newer memories uh, and recall older ones happens too. And then semantic, eventually, those, those effects happen. And the thing is here, even with, even with KC, we can give him a good enough retrieval cue and he can recall something. Not, not someone with Alzheimer's disease. That tells us the information was never even encoded. It's not that it, with KC, it's a problem of encoding and retrieval. But if we give him enough information, he can show us that he learned something. Alzheimer's patients can't because they never even encoded it. The last thing they go around declarative things, um, so procedural things like skills. 
And this is why you'll see actually a lot of therapeutic things that are done basically to make people's lives a little bit livable uh, with Alzheimer's patients are things like getting them to do something they've always done. So if, they're, if they knew how to play guitar or play piano, get them to do that. They may be at this point basically nonverbal. They don't know who anybody is, but you put a piano in front of them and play it. And at least gives them the notion is, because we don't know, but the notion is it gives them a little bit of happiness. So that's the kind of behavioral treatment you're talking about. How do we treat this? Right now, most drugs are ones that, call, uh, that, that target the cholinergic system. So they're going after trying to do something uh, to stop cell death in the cholinergic system. Because that, that's the, the, the biggest problem. Uh, there's some pro pro promises while using the uh, factor. You've got to realize that it doesn't only affect the victim. It affects, and again, if you've gone through this with somebody in your family, it affects the whole family. Because you're watching someone stop being who they were. And that's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. Uh, I'm, I don't think my grandmother has it. She's just got basically, I'm really old. She has dementia, she's like 95. So she has, but she'll say, how do I have good days and bad days? You know, or she'll say things like, This just happened, and it's like, well, it's three weeks ago. Right. But I don't think that's Alzheimer's, and she's 95 years old. Well, I think their natural brain atrophy. Yeah, I mean, over time, yeah. over time, things are going to shut down. Yeah, it's just, you know, my grandmother at this point, she's blind. You know, but if I make a joke to a welcome to my world, Nanny, she's like, I don't get that. What is that? Okay, I can't see very well. Remember that? That thing where I don't see well? You know, so it's, uh, and then she has other days where it's like I'm talking to her and she was 50 and I'm 10 years old or 8 years old. The treatments will come. Uh, there's a lot of money according to this. This will, I, I can't see how this gets reversed. This involves rewiring a brain. It's not going to get reversed. The reversal happens, and I'm not making this up, the reversal happens when we can actually download our our brain onto a, onto a up to the cloud. That's where it happens. We may not have a reversal technique, but we could have a preventative. You could. I mean, that's also going to be the big thing. If we actually can figure out what caused it, we can prevent it. Yeah, or at least make it less likely. Right? There's less cases of uh, lung cancer now because not as many people smoke and and, and work in asbestos infested environments. Right. Um, so if we can figure out what caused it, you can do something. There are, there's a rare subtype that's completely genetic, but it's only like 1% of all cases. The other ones, like, we don't know it's this gene. But other ones, we don't. We don't know. I can tell you a couple things. It is not aluminum pots or deodorant. You may have heard those two things. That's quack nut jobs say things like that. The same people that are the conspiracy people. <coughs> Isn't it some of the reasons why they don't know what causes Alzheimer's is because they don't have much of a medical or personal history of that person's past, but it could be as simple as just a, a slight concussion could have caused I mean, I, I've heard that. The thing is, there are so many cases now that, and there's so much research going on. 
It doesn't surprise me that everybody has, at one point in their life, bumped their head hard enough to have a slight concussion. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But I mean, not everybody, even if they have something to do with that, not everybody develops Alzheimer's disease. It's just like most, actually, most people that smoke don't die of lung cancer. But they're more, wait, you're way more likely to die of something, that, that rare thing, but it's still rare even among smokers to die of lung cancer. Right. I know I, I have been in an accident and I have uh, frontal uh, and collateral damage, or sorry, temporal damage, and they couldn't say what kind of effect it would have because of the type of injury that it is, but it put me at a higher risk um, for Alzheimer's, dementia, really? and, and for dementia, I can see, I don't know about and um, some other, I forget what it was, but just put me at a higher risk. Right. To develop these. Well, I've not, I've not heard that. I mean, I, I don't doubt it. I'm not, I've not heard it. Uh, one of the key things for families, like if you're looking after somebody like that, is just as, as an aside, it's a respite. Because, I mean, the family needs time when they can go and not have to deal with, with dad or mom or grandma or grandpa who are, you know, dying in that Alzheimer's. It's not, it's not easy. Um, so that was really fun. Uh, I hate that part. Hey, hey, hey. Um, some conclusions then. For most amnesiacs, there's not a lot of hope. The best hope we can give them with someone who's had a brain injury or someone who's had um, a stroke is we can teach them coping skills. Right? See, with strokes, it depends on what it is, right? You could actually, if it's a working memory problem, get them to use a smartphone. They can learn how to do that. Learn stuff even if they have amnesia. The biggest problem happens when we have cases where, you know, the more severe the case, the harder it is for someone to lead a normal life, even with any kind of aid. Neuroscience is moving pretty fast. Um, might, will we get a way to stop Alzheimer's before it, once it starts? I think that's the most promising thing after prevention. But to, for prevention, we still need to know what causes it. To stop head injuries, you should do things like wear a helmet when you're running a bicycle. Wear your seatbelts. I mean, just really not hard things to do. Uh, my, I guess it should be my second cousin. Um, Susan works with people with brain injuries, and she's constantly, it drives her crazy because she sees people not wearing helmets doing things. I kid her a lot and say, yeah, I know you believe that we get up in the morning, we should all put helmets on. But... She's right in that when you see, everybody's like, oh, my kid has to wear a bike helmet until they're 18. Then not anymore. Wear a bike helmet. How hard is that? You know? And it's not like no one wears them. So it's not like you look like an idiot. It's not like you're putting on knight's armor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I go riding with my son and I'm on, a, on our tandem bike, and I wear a bike helmet. And we're not, we don't go that fast because the whole time John's in the background and in, in the back. Going, we're, we're at maximum speed, slow down. <laughs> um, the, the biggest thing here is that for our purposes in this class, is that this stuff helps us understand normal function. And that's true in a lot of, well, in medicine in general, but also in, in, in psychology in general, that abnormal functioning can tell us a great deal about how normal functioning is.
tragedy and I reserve the right to say I told you so In the preview there was much to do and now I'm doing everything to let you know Nothing is right, nothing is wrong, nothing is something to podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.